1992, historian Stephen Ambrose wrote a book called Band of Brothers. It was based on interviews with World War II vets who were in the 506th Regiment, the 101st Airborne Easy Company. They invaded on D-Day from on behind enemy lines, and they stayed there in Europe until the Germans surrender. They were even the ones who captured Hitler's eagle's nest and kept some souvenirs for themselves. In this series that was later released as a series on HBO, if you've watched it, many of you have probably watched this and you know how special this series is, uh, lives and limbs were lost. Some made it home, some did not. And I've watched this series numerous times. And every time I see it, I, I get this reminder of what I often take for granted, not because I'm a bad person, but just because I forget. And, and it's that all these freedoms and benefits that you and I enjoy granted to us by a generation that has almost completely died out, the greatest generation we call them. And I don't know about you, but the problem with me is over time, these things are easy to forget, kind of out of sight, out of mind. And my thought is in today's text in 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'm going to focus mainly on verses 10 through 12, the last three verses that Laura read, it, is that the same can be true of the privileges we have in Christ. So in Peter's first letter, there's a lot in this letter about practical Christian living. But you might have noticed what he does first is he takes a step back and he says, let us rewind to how we got here in the first place. Let us remember and appreciate this. And, and the passage, again, ends with verses 10 through 12. And as your Bible is open, or maybe you've got it on your phone, you might want to follow along with me, because I'm going to refer back to some of the things said in this passage. But let me just paraphrase verses 10 through 12. Here's what Peter is going to tell us. You and I are living in the greatest biblical generation. Of all the generations in Scripture, you and I are living in the greatest biblical generation. We have it better than the prophets who foresaw it and the angels who are watching us right now. And, and in this passage, those are the two groups Peter talks about. He spends almost all of his time talking about the prophets, and then he ends with a note about the angels. He says of the prophets, they prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. In other words, he said what the prophets did was they gave us a divine preview of what you and I now enjoy. In past biblical history, God's people saw great works. They heard God's voice. I don't know about you, I've never, aside from the Spirit maybe speaking to me in the quietness of my heart, I've never heard God's voice, except when I watched the Ten Commandments when I was about four. Scared me to death. The burning bush scene, didn't want to go back to my bedroom that night. Whoa, Moses. You know, that's the only time I've heard God's voice was on ABC. And it ran all night and into the next day with commercials, but, but I digress. And you know, late in the Old Testament, God spoke to and through prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, Malachi, or as some people call him, Malachi, the great Italian prophet. If you, I have a friend who says, if I were, we asked him one time, if you were going to take anyone through any book of the Bible first, what would it be? And you know what he said? He said, Ezekiel. What kind of weirdo does that? His name was Cole Fakes, though, so he likes Ezekiel. <laughs> but, 
on occasion, a lot of times the prophets would just tell Israel and Judah what they needed to straighten up on, but on occasion they would tell them about what was to come. But at best, they could only give God's people blurry or fuzzy images of what we now know. It says here in the text, they searched and inquired carefully. To search here means to seek out earnestly. To inquire means to search diligently. It's two statements meaning the same thing. And what Peter's saying here is they made a persistent and thorough search. They squinted trying to understand what God would only reveal to them in a cloudy, fuzzy sense. For what were they searching? It says they were searching in verse 11, uh, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So they were wondering, who will this person be? At what time will he arrive? Just like now we ask, when will he return? Wouldn't it be great to know? That was them with his first coming. It's kind of like, you know, back in that dark day in Oklahoma City, April 19th, 1995. You remember either late in the day or the next day, there was a crime sketch of two possible suspects. We found out later it was just one, but there's these two possible suspects. And we saw this crime sketch, but I don't know about you, when you saw it, you're thinking, that could be thousands of people. And then by God's grace, Timothy McVeigh was captured the next day. And then you saw on the TV screen who he was, and you're, you're like, that was a pretty good crime sketch. But we got to see the result, and we all thank God that this person had been captured, but now we, the mystery of who this was became our cold reality. That's kind of like what the prophets did. They provided a crime sketch, a little bit different, he's an innocent man, but they provided a sketch where you could kind of see, but you kind of could not see. You and I, however, we know the actual person that they wrote about. We celebrate him worldwide in huge ways every December 25th and every Easter Sunday, which comes so late this year. I think it's in June, but it's late this year. We celebrate him every year. We meet every Sunday and we speak his name. We know his name. We know where he grew up. We know what he did. Listen to what Jesus told his disciples once when he was with them in Matthew 13, 16 and 17. He says, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And then I love Philip's excitement in John 1:45. Philip found his friend Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and, and the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. It's like Philip was saying, He's here. This is the one we've been waiting for. Our parents waited for this. Our grandparents waited for this. Our great-grandparents waited for this. Nathanael, can you believe it? He's here. I think he said it like that too. Like Barney Fife. He's here. That's not in the notes, by the way. Uh, here's what Peter is saying here. If you want to write this down in your Bible, or if you've got something to write with, I'll repeat it a couple of times. The prophet's mystery is our history. The prophet's mystery is our history. Their crime sketch is our photograph. Now, to appreciate this further, I want to read to you Jesus' words in Luke 7. I wanted to read the whole thing, but I'm just going to read the last verse. It's where he says, you, heard, you saw John the Baptist. You saw when he came, and he's building up John the Baptist for proceeding, for, for, 
for, uh, for preparing the way. I've heard someone say the last Old Testament prophet is technically John the Baptist. He's the last prophet to speak of Messiah to come. And in Luke 7, 28, Jesus says something that I still, I had a hard time understanding what this meant for a while, but it relates to this passage. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. But then he says this, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. The one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. And I asked, how can this be? How can the least in my generation be greater than the one who introduced Jesus? And the only way I could try to understand this was, um, we've got some people here who just got back from Israel. They flew overseas on a 747. They landed in Newark. Half of them stayed there because they liked the view for a few more hours, Colin Lahr being among them. And then they flew back to Oklahoma City. And so 48 hours ago, there are people in this room that were completely across the world. Now, why is that? We can attribute that first to a couple of guys with the last name Wright in North Carolina who were the first in flight. They showed us that it's possible to actually be airborne. Now, I, w- I, w- I don't know how much longer the Wright brothers lived after that, but can you imagine if they could see today what we now enjoy, that a toddler can get on an airplane, sit in a seat, a flight attendant will serve them pretzels, and in the good old days, peanuts, and they can ask for a Coke, you can drink airline coffee. A woman with child can fly overseas now. And so in that sense, we are greater than the Wright brothers. That's what Jesus is saying about John. He's saying, the least in the kingdom of heaven, I'm nothing like the Wright brothers. I'm nothing like John the Baptist. But I can get on an airplane, and I can fly somewhere. I can turn a little air conditioner valve on to cool myself off if it gets warm. I can look at a screen in front of me that tells me where I am. I can watch a movie about the Wright brothers. We are not more significant than the the prophets of old, but we do enjoy more advantages. They prepared the way. You and I enjoy the way. I might put it this way. We are the greatest biblical generation, not because of what we have achieved, but because of what we have received. We are the greatest biblical generation, not because of what we have achieved. The prophets did far more than all of us except Cole, but... Not because of what we have achieved, but because what we have received. In Hebrews 1, the first verse of the book of Hebrews says this. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has never been clearer with humanity than he has since 33 AD. And this is the clearest he will be until Christ comes back. And we live in that time. We know, we see, the prophets anticipated, we celebrate. We know. Then he talks about angels. If the prophet's mystery is our history, the angel's curiosity is our reality. The angel's curiosity is our reality. He ends this in verse 12 with just this, things into which angels long to look, long to look. To, they desire to look. And this word look, is, is to, it means to look into, not just to look at. 
In other words, the angels have a desire to experience what we experience and not just to observe it. And here's the thing. The angels can never experience what you and I experience as children of God who believe in Jesus Christ. I think of it this way. I mean, think of, I won't mention teams here because I don't know who's for who, but imagine you go to see your favorite football team or basketball team or curling team, whatever it might be. And you're in the stands, and you love this team, and you cheer them on, and you get excited when they score, but, but how many of you are like me? I mean, I grew up watching a team here in Oklahoma that I won't mention because it's not the same, coal pull, same one Cole pulls for. You know, I pull for UCO. No. I mean, I grew up going to games and still do as a 55-year-old. I go into that stadium, and I feel like an 8-year-old again. And what I do is I sit up there, and I go, what must it be like to be on that team to hear what's going on on the sidelines, to go into that locker room after a big win and to celebrate and to have that camaraderie. But I can't know. I mean, I'm big enough to have played. I'm, I'm 160 dripping wet. I mean, I'm kidding. I'm being sarcastic there. But I always wanted to play on that team growing up, but I, never, I didn't have the talent. I didn't have the size. Uh, and I, I was small, but I was slow. So... Um, <laughs> And I still wonder what, my, and you know what, I'll never, I mean, maybe even if I got a pass into the locker room, I still don't know what it's like to be there. I, I watch and I'm in awe, but I cannot understand what it's like. I can only imagine. Band of Brothers, I can watch it and I can be proud of what those men did for us, but they've got a special bond that no one, not even their wives have with them because they were there. We can, wa- we can watch from the stands in those situations, but we cannot enter into their world. We are spectators, not participants, and the same is true with the angels. And this is what's interesting about this. You may, I don't know if you do, but I've got friends, they are enamored by angels. You know, they have paintings in their houses, and they have figurines, and they're collecting them, so they'll sell them someday. But there's all kinds of angel stuff. But here's the biblical reality. Angels are fascinated by us. I don't know if they have little human figurines in their little houses. I don't know what that looks like. But angels are fascinated by people who know Jesus Christ as their Savior. They look into this and they, 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 they think, they wonder, what must it be like to cross over from death to life? What must it be like to go from lost to found? What must it be like to be alienated at one time from God and now to be one of His closest friends? And that's the thing about angels. Angels can never be redeemed humans, ever. They can only watch from the stands and wonder. We don't become angels. We don't want to become angels because we have something angels will never have. And they gaze into it and they think, what must that be like? And so what we see in the prophets and the angels is creatures who play significant roles in God's plan We, on the other hand, are insignificant people who enjoy the fulfillment of God's plan. They play significant roles. We enjoy the fulfillment. And Peter brings this home to this wondrous fact that we may take for granted, just as a summary. God has never been clearer with creation than he has with those born after the cross in the empty tomb. God has never given humanity more than he has given us in Christ. King Solomon richest man on earth, built the first temple of God. We have far more because we are the temple of God. 
Moses saw God in a burning bush. He saw the, a portion of God's glory. He stood at the Red Sea and parted the Red Sea. We have Christ in us, the hope of glory. Joshua saw the walls of Jericho fall. He led Israel into conquer the promised land. We have far more in Christ than even a promised land. We are not the most significant players in God's grand plan, but we do enjoy the most significant time in God's plan. So what can this do for us? How can this benefit us and even challenge us? And I want to talk about two things to close out that can result from appreciating this marvelous truth. The first thing is simply this, it's worship. I don't know, sometimes I go into a worship service and I, I may like certain things about it, I may not. I loved everything today, absolutely flawless. But you know what? It's usually not the service that inspires me. It's what's already in there that, that is brought out. Worship comes from an appreciation of what we possess that we don't deserve. It's like Band of Brothers. I don't deserve what they did for me, but I possess it. I possess the freedoms that they gave me. When I reflect on the privileges I enjoy because Christ has been revealed, he has come for me, he has bled for me, he has risen for me, and the scripture makes this clear, my heart overflows with worship. Does yours? Do you ever just need to read? I have to go back and revisit that sometime. So if you belong to Christ, maybe you can do something. Here's my suggestion. Maybe when you wake up in the morning, you might say to yourself something like this, nobody has it better. Nobody has it better in all of history than this generation, and I'm part of this generation. Nobody has it better than those who belong to Christ, who know him, who know why he came, and know what he has done for us. Nobody has it better. And this is, this is true whether you wake up with a smile on your face or you wake up with some kind of sorrow. My wife and I, in the last year and a half, we've lost a child and my mother. There are very hard days. There are very sad and dreary days. There are awful days. But I'm so glad that that awfulness comes with me living in the greatest generation. Job lost 10 kids, and he could only hope for what was to come. We've lost one, and, but we have this hope. And, and sometimes we just have to say to ourselves, this day's just been horrible, but I am Christ's and he is mine. Thank God. People say, how do you do this without Christ? I say, I don't know. I don't know how you do this without Christ. So worship. When we come to grips with this, we don't have to force ourselves to worship. We don't have to ask somebody to inspire us to worship. It will come from here and flow out. The second thing that comes into play when we're reminded of this truth is accountability. He says in verse 13, Therefore, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. He's speaking to people who already know Christ, but he's saying, So keep hoping in that grace. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it's, it's kind of a warning. The author says, While the promise of entering God's rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as it did to them. He's referring to those in, in Moses' day. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united. It was not united by faith with those who listened. In Christ, God has never been clearer his message has never been nor ever will be as vivid as it is now. And therefore, we must not only know about Christ, but we must also, as many of you would say, we must trust in Him. 
If we are to enjoy what the prophets and angels could not quite grasp, we must not only appreciate this truth, we must set our hope fully in it. The author of Hebrews would earlier say, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? So if we already know Christ, we keep setting our hope on Him. We resist the temptation to hope in anything less. Uh, I'm, I'm not trying to be a better person in the sense of I'm not trying that to earn favor with God. What I know is that God fully approves of me because I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And I am still trying to be a better, better guy. And for the most part, I'm picking up my socks off the floor at night, that kind of thing. So I'm improving. But that's not where my hope is. It's not in my self-improvement. It's in Christ. If we know about Christ, though, but it stops there, we must choose to fully trust in Him and not in ourselves if we are to enjoy the hope that's in store. And if this is true of you, remember, God will never be clearer to you than He has been in Christ. So if you're waiting on more clarity, there's no more clarity left. I mean, the Spirit will speak to us in individual ways, but as far as God's plan, the plan until Christ comes back has no more blanks to fill in. It's, it's there. And God has sent His Son to live the perfect life we can't live, to die the death we deserve, and He rose again to be our only hope. And so don't leave this world waiting on God to be clearer than this. Trust in the gift that has already been opened. That author, Stephen Ambrose, takes me back to a time before I was born, pulling back the curtain on why I enjoy what I enjoy as an American. Peter takes us back further to a curtain that was ripped in two, and reminds us the only true hope we can have in a world that often seems out of control and hopeless is in Christ. Especially this world that's just gone crazy this last week. I'm so glad. Have y'all been watching some of the churches in Ukraine that are still meeting and they're still singing? And they're still worshiping? And they may die, but they're like, it doesn't matter. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I close with this brief story. One year ago tomorrow... Jenny and I were with my mother at Mercy Hospital while she was in her last hours. She had dementia, and she had just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and it was just a matter of time. At that day, on that day, on that uh, Sunday, her body was lifeless. She was hardly moving. You know, I, as a congregational care pastor, I've been around numerous people that are dying, and when you're in those final stages, often your body is so weak you can't even open your eyes. You try to speak, but you can't speak. You just can't do anything because your body is completely shutting down. But at one point, about 30 minutes before she died, was Haley there too or was it just us two? Just us. Our daughter came up too. About 30 minutes before, her eyes popped open. She looked up. She had not been able to move a muscle, and her hands reached up. I don't know what she saw. I don't know if it was family members or, or if it was Christ. I, it was probably both. But her body suddenly went like this. And, you know, of course, I'm like, do you see Kyle? Do you see our son? Do you see Jesus? Do you see me, Mom, Papa? What do you see? And she couldn't tell me. She could just do this. But, you know, my mom's favorite hymn was this. She said, I want, and she had told me before, my mom wrote her obituary. She did everything. Lance, if nothing else is sung at my funeral, I want this song. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. What she saw was what Christ had. She saw the grace ready to be revealed.
it was revealed to her. She rests in the presence of God now, not because my mom was a great person, and she was. It is because she trusted in Jesus Christ. Thank God. And there, thank God that it was so clear to her. Christ was hers. Is he yours? Let's pray. Our Father, what a, what a privilege it is to, to live in the greatest biblical generation. To be able, in this group here at Carlton Landing, they get to meet each Sunday and they come in already knowing what Isaiah didn't know fully, what Ezekiel did not know fully, what David did not know fully, what Solomon did not know fully, what, what Moses did not what Abraham. They only saw a cloudy picture, but we get to walk into a building every Sunday, and we speak the name Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth in Galilee, who was killed on a cross in Jerusalem, who rose three days later, who has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and who is preparing a place for us. We still have a little mystery yet to be revealed, but the greatest mystery of all is ours. And I pray that we will appreciate this, and every Sunday when we meet, we will come back together and just in our hearts rejoice together that we live in the greatest biblical generation. You are so good. You are so good, God. We love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.